and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. And uh, a good afternoon as well up in Pretoria, not too far away from you, Kobus. We're joined uh, once again this week by Dr. Chris Alden, who is the uh, head of uh, the Global Affairs Program at uh, Global Powers and uh, Africa at the South African Institute of International Affairs. And he's also an uh, international relations professor at the London School of Economics. We're thrilled to have you back on the show again today. Uh, Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Well, we're going to talk today about South Sudan. Now, for those of you who are rolling your eyes and thinking to yourself, well, we just talked about South Sudan a couple of weeks ago, and people are a little bit maybe South Sudan out when it comes to thinking about Chinese diplomacy. A couple key events have happened in the past couple of weeks that we think are worthy of a a bit more exploration. In part, there has been a ceasefire, a tenuous ceasefire. And and while we say there's been a ceasefire between the rival factions there, um, you know, these things break very, very quickly. So by the time you hear this, it actually may be a broken because we're seeing reports that say that it's, it's tense at best. In part, when you think of the conflict in South Sudan, it is really the perfect storm because it's part ethnic, it's part of civil conflict, and increasingly it's an international conflict with the presence of Ugandan troops that are there. And now uh, word coming out from Beijing that Chinese international peacekeepers may be deployed as well there. So uh, it's it's really a, a a potential mess. And and Kobus, let me just get started with you very quickly to talk about the importance of South Sudan uh, for China and and also talking about China's diplomacy in South Sudan. So before we get into the details with with Chris uh, to give us some insights on this, uh, set up what's been going on in relation to the Chinese and why South Sudan in particular is so important to Beijing. Well, South Sudan has is the third largest oil source in Africa after Nigeria and Angola, um, and it's the Chinese are heavily invested there. Um, they've they've built pipelines and refineries, and you know kind of they they've had a, a large staff of oil workers there for a long time. Those workers have now been um, been evacuated because of the war. Um, so China has a lot of um, of vested interests. Um, to try and and create peace. And there's been increasing calls in Beijing for China to be more involved, more explicitly involved. you know, kind of, and and those um, some of those commentators. I read an article by Global Times today, where the commentators um, you know, referred back to the crisis that happened in Libya earlier, where a bunch of Chinese workers had to be evacuated by the Chinese army. And the lessons that I actually drew from that is not less engagement with with hotspots in Africa, but that China should be more aggressively engaged in in kind of smoothing the way and making peace and you know, kind of building new deals. Um, you know, so so that's that's where we are. You know, kind of the the crisis in South Sudan seems at the moment to be drawing, um, you know, kind of support for a more, uh, a more interventionist maybe or more active China in the region. Well, Chris, when, when I'm thinking about this, you know, I just finished uh, Professor David Shambaugh's book on China, the partial power. Mm-hmm. And there's, and, and, and Professor Shambaugh talks a lot about the expectations of China now as a, as a global power. But its ability to deliver up to those expectations, and he used the metaphor, he uses a boxing metaphor that says China often punches below its weight. That is, it's not carrying the, playing the role of a global power in terms of being able to persuade and force outcomes, much as the Soviets did during the Soviet Union, much as the Americans did and do today. And they're more of a, a persuasive actor. They try and cajole people together, but they don't really take center stage. That there's an indication, and we don't exactly know what 
role China played in the ceasefire process, but there are some hints that uh, China's special envoy to to the talks, Zhong Jianhua, may have actually brought the two sides together. What's your take in terms of China's diplomacy and what, what we're seeing in South Sudan? Does it represent a bolder diplomacy living up to the expectations maybe that David Shambaugh kind of spoke about in his book? I think that um, Sudan generally and South Sudan now in particular has always uh, forced the hand of Chinese diplomacies in ways that, that Beijing had, uh, had not anticipated or, or perhaps even desired that uh, in some way, as you said in, in the, the initial remarks, that, that this region represents the perfect storm and, uh, for, for China. So, so we've seen a, a, a forced pace in the late, in the build-up to between 2004 and 2008. We see a forced pace on Chinese diplomacy towards the Sudan-Darfur question. With independence, uh, we, we see of uh, South Sudan, we see uh, the separatist movement and, and questions of, of uh, recognition, uh, energy resources and the like. In each case, Chinese diplomacy has gradually raised its game in order to, to address Chinese interests within the context of, of, of uh, the ever-shifting uh, set of challenges that this particular conflict and region posed for it. So Chinese diplomacy is... is uh, being, uh, it's a kind of cutting edge, if you like, of where China, an activist China will be, as, to use Corvus's word. It's uh, uh, and uh, a future of Chinese engagement in certain ways can be measured by the kinds of initiatives we see uh, taking that the Chinese take take part in, in in Sudan or are willing to take part in in the in the Sudan question generally in South Sudan in particular. Chris, um, you've you've done some work um, in, in you know in, in during your career. You've done some work on post-conflict resolution. Um, how, how do you see um, China actually contributing to a post-ceasefire South Sudan? Like, how, wh- where would their help be most valuable? The challenges of post-conflict are are absolute. <laughs> there, there are many, but one of the things that China has in particular that is to my mind, important, useful, and 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 speaks to the the the, the most immediate amongst the most immediate challenges in a post-conflict environment, which is their ability to mobilize financial resources to give to to create visible forms of uh, uh, of the peace dividend. So the war comes to an end, shaky ceasefire in any country, South Sudan as well. Um, and the population has to ask itself, uh, what are we, so yesterday was the war, today's the ceasefire, what's happening tomorrow? How am I going to get food on the table? And one of the things to, is to begin to get that mar- the markets going, get the entrepreneurs out there, get, get people, services delivered, and you need, how, you, you need a hospital, you need a road. China's demonstrated time and again, and often criticized for this too, uh, uh, that its ability to mobilize resources quickly, lay a road, get get some basic infrastructure in place. That window of of, of uh, that shaky period of peace, where people are investing their time in a potentially positive future, can close. And it looks like South Sudan is one of those cases where it it, it might close again. And you can't recapture that. I saw that. Well, we all saw that in Angola. You go. You know, there was a great optimism in the early 90s and then when the first episode of peace and then another episode and, and in each case peace didn't come i think peace requires the economic form of of the peace dividend can only come if you have 
some basic improvements to the, to the infrastructure. China has demonstrated it has that, that capacity. And, and of course, that was uh, one of the classic mistakes of the American invasion of Iraq, which was, looking back on it, uh, Im- immediately upon the invasion, there was a burst of enthusiasm, and then there wasn't that peace dividend that was that was brought to it. Speaking of the Americans, um, this is one of, you know, South Sudan's one of the, the few opportunities in global diplomacy where the U.S. and the Chinese actually meet in a in, in a non-confrontational way, in a non-competitive way. And it's really stood out as one of the examples of potential Sino-U.S. collaboration and tripartite diplomacy. This, you know, this has long been hyped about and talked about in academic circles, but on the ground uh, it hasn't materialized. You know, the United States has real interest in South Sudan, in part as a buffer against uh, Omar al-Bashir in Sudan, which they don't like. Uh, you know, a prosperous, thriving democracy south of, Su- of Sudan is, is a way to kind of show the Muslim world that there is hope and there is opportunity for it. Obviously, the Chinese have economic interests, and these two seem to come together quite well. When you look at the diplomacy that's gone on for the past few months between or among the Americans and the Chinese and others, what do you take away from it? No, I think it, it builds on a, an earlier tradition, I should say, that goes back to the Darfur conflict, but that, that there was a change in, in the Chinese approach, and quite the, the special envoy worked quite closely with his American counterpart. And that tradition carries on uh, into the c- contemporary, you know, not without hiccups and points of disagreement, what have you. And I think this is, this, this is a very powerful uh, uh, um, alliance of interest, if you can put it that way, uh, to, to, to bring into... Both have interests in a success, as you pointed out, and uh, that, that if we're looking for, for bright spots in, in a relationship that sometimes is contentious, this is the sort of uh, example we should be focusing on. Kobus, let me turn to you and, and your, your perspective on the Japanese side of all this. Shinzo Abe, the prime minister, was just in, uh, in Africa doing a tour, three-nation tour. He, the issue of South Sudan did come up. And one of the most sensitive issues when we think about South Sudan, of course, is the pipeline. Currently, all of the oil uh, that, that's pulled out of the ground in the south must actually be piped up through the north where it's processed, refined, and then exported out. There's no refining capacity in the south. So the Japanese are among a number of different players who are talking about building a pipeline south, possibly all the way out to Mombasa. Uh, so when the Chinese are, are, are in that space there and they see the Japanese trying to kind of come in, what's the implication there on that, on the diplomacy? Well, I think one of the big implications is that it, you know, kind of it affects South Sudan proper. Um, and of course, you know, the, the original the refineries at the moment are in Sudan. Um, and Sudan is a longtime ally of China. Um, so I think, you know, kind of except for the fact that, that it just, the, you know, the, the relationship between China and Japan itself is so inflamed at the moment, um, you know, kind of it, it, it also has the potential to um, to cause problems within the sub-region. Um, you, you know, um, it, the, the issue, though, is to which extent the, the this pipeline project was a, a, a casualty of the war. You know, kind of whether whether it whether it still exists after the war, you know, kind of is is an open question, and we'll we'll have to see how how it goes ahead. The other issue, I think, that that could be very complicated for the Japanese and any other kind of foreign foreign kind of powers coming in, is that South Sudan is a very corrupt place. Um, I recently saw that Salva Kiir. Uh, the current president has admitted that um, about four billion dollars of of South Sudanese oil revenue have been stolen by by South 
South Sudanese officials. So, I mean, that's a difficult place to move into for anyone. Um, You know, kind of, and I think, you know, kind of, you know, it'll be very interesting to see how these foreign powers in China in particular deals with this level of corruption. Chris, one of the questions that came up in our last show that Kobus and I were talking about the diplomacy in South Sudan is what leverage China has. You, You know, when the United States... Uh, traditionally, in its you know in, in its more in better times, uh, there was a, a little bit of fear that the United States carried as the preeminent hyperpower around the world, that it could exact real pain on people, and that would bring them to the table to force concessions, to force compromise, and ultimately come out with an agreement. It hasn't happened in the Middle East in in the Arab-Israeli uh, conflict, but it's happened elsewhere. So when we think about a discussion like what's been going on in Addis Ababa among the various powers. What leverage does China actually have to force the powers to the table to say, listen, if you don't do this, we're going to pull out our money, we're going to do something that then makes everybody kind of sober up. Talk to us a little bit about how you think those conversations went and and what China could actually do to force or bring the parties together. I I think the... the Again, I, I, I should preface by saying that I wasn't obviously privy to the discussion. No, no itself, one was, so it's not public, so the, that's fair. Yeah, yeah. So speak to the uh, to a basic understanding of it. I, I, I would think the emphasis would be not on, on punitive means, but incentives. It would be about, uh, and again, it's, it, it reflects, as you said earlier, discussions about soft power. Um, the emphasis is on, it's not to say that these are, aren't on the table, but it isn't the default position. The default position is to say, how can we convince these people to convince themselves that it's more sensible and better economic to, to draw the that everyone gains from peace and uh, uh, that we'll be able to put the pipeline in to, to, uh, through Kenyan territory and and you can complete the develop you can begin those development projects and improve livelihoods and so on and so forth. So I think the emphasis would rather than on punitive would be on on uh, um, incentives. I would uh, and the reason I say that is you take much more embedded in complex uh, problems like North Korea, where where um, China has always had the ability to do more in terms of punitive measures. And from what little we can gather. Those have been used, but very selectively, certainly behind the scenes, uh, not, not, no, no big fanfare sanctions type of stuff. Um, at the moment, Chris, just in terms of the fallout of the conflict, um, there's now talk uh, that between 100, 112 to 400,000 people have fled. Um, they fled their homes, and apparently 60,000 people are in a Uganda alone from South Sudan. Um, the, the UN has said that about 1,000 people are arriving per day, um, and that you know, kind of uh, Ugandan um, refugee camps are completely overwhelmed. Um, can you give us an idea about you know, kind of, does China have the capacity to help with this kind of humanitarian problem? Do they have the experience, um, and will they? Do, do, do you foresee that they might get more more active in dealing with these kind of widespread disasters? in the future they don't have an international experience in this though maybe individual chinese i know of individual chinese who've been part of world food program and you know this this kind of thing but as a as a government they they haven't had this sort of experience on this scale um uh, but it's an area where there will be growing expectations for a role and again as 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 um Eric was saying about the kind of uh, partial partial power um there's an expectation that if you're in, if you're a regional 
uh, or, or a leader, global leader that, that you should have a stake in each of these areas. China contributes to the UN's peace building fund, but it doesn't do much peace building as yet. Um, so there's, there's every like, it supports humanitarian, uh, provides financial resources and, and, and goods in kind in support of humanitarian operations, but it doesn't have a, a Chinese infrastructure to, to uh, let infrastructure to, uh, to carry out these operations. So I think in future we'll see some of that. There's always going to be a careful calculation. Africa is far away. Uh, it's one thing if you have a refugee crisis and you're sort of in your near abroad there, but, but uh, um, it, it, as yet, I'm not sure it's ready to take it to that level. It, the expectation is there globally and locally, but whether they're able to um, uh, do it yet is, a, is another matter. So if you're a student of international relations and diplomacy, South Sudan right now is probably one of the most interesting case studies that's out there, uh, both from a Sino-U.S. point of view, but also Sino-African and, and even you know, intra-African as well. There's so many different pieces that are moving right now there. Uh, so it is absolutely fascinating. Uh, Chris, thank you so much again for your insights on this. This is a topic that I know that we're going to return to, COBUS, in the future uh, because uh, it really is reflective in many ways of China's emerging diplomacy. COBUS mentioned one very interesting point that I want to wrap up on, which is that, you know, China may be getting, uh, you know, queasy with these high-risk oil uh, investments, uh, but it doesn't seem like it's backing away from South Sudan. So uh, even though Libya really scared the Chinese from what happened there, particularly with UN Resolution 1973, which prompted the uh, the Western military attack uh, in, in Libya that ed- that ended the life of Muammar Gaddafi. It doesn't seem like they are they're pulling back from South Sudan. So that's again we won't we won't know and until the you know the coming months. But uh, Chris wanted to thank you so much again for joining us on the show. Uh, the best way for people to follow you and and to kind of read some of your research is to check you out on the LSE and the SIA websites? Correct. Yes, that's that's uh, where it is today. Okay, and SIA is at uh, www.saiia, there's two I's in there, .org.za. Once again, Chris is the, the head of the Global Powers in Africa program there and also does uh, a lot of work up at uh, the London School of Economics. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you. And Kobus, if people want to follow you and what you're doing, uh, what's the best way they can stay in touch? Um, you'll see my name on our Facebook page. That's uh, facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Um, and my name will be in brackets when I comment. And I'm also on Twitter at Stadenesque. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And Kobus and I are updating the Facebook page almost 18 hours a day from both Asia and Africa. So it's really a great way to stay on top of the top stories that are going on and participate in probably the only kind of discussion of it's uh, anywhere in the world where you've got you know tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of now people from across Africa South Asia the Middle East uh, North America Europe uh, all participating on this one topic of China in Africa and all various aspects of its engagement so we invite you to check that out and of course if you'd like to follow the podcast look us up on SoundCloud uh, you can also find us on iTunes the Stitcher Network and also on Blackberry Network in South Africa so until next time thank you so much for listening to the China in Africa podcast.